The title of this sermon this morning is Living in the Lord's Favor. And our main text is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So it's Living in the Lord's Favor from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Well, our time of waiting for the advent of Christ, the celebration of the first advent, has come and gone. And we basked for a short while in that warm afterglow of Christmas that's so enjoyable. And of course, according to our modern calendar, after Christmas quickly comes the new year. A date assigned much importance by some, while hardly any importance by others. Let's pause and consider what does a new year bring? Or maybe more accurately, we should consider why do some people find it important? Although many New Year's celebrations have taken on the trappings of a pagan festival and Unfortunately, when we think of New Year's Eve and New Year's, that's what usually comes to mind. We who are faithful Christians mark this as an important date on our calendar. But why is that? Because we recognize that the Lord God works in human history. So human history and dates are thus important to us. And all people, really, besides us, but including us certainly, mark events by dates, particularly in most cases, I would say, by the year in which they occur. And events, historical happenings, affect the church. We experienced this, I would say, recently during the time of what I would call the great fear which was declared by governments worldwide beginning in 2020 and lasting three years. We were impacted by it, as was everybody. Of course, one might say historical events affect most everything, and they do. But we find it illuminating, I would say, how the church in particular is affected. I think this is what we should examine. How is the church affected? There's, there's a lesson that we can learn in this. There's a great takeaway, I would say. And usually, the church is affected in ways that are unexpected, even in ways that are the reverse from how secular human organizations are affected. It is like many things of God, it's counterintuitive to human nature. So the, one, of, one of the themes that I want to focus on, just to, to give you an idea and so you can look for it, is, is the idea of learning from our past as we go into our future. In this time that we've been through, this period of three years that were a challenge I think for all of us and difficult for us to varying degrees, we found that some of those who had been among us departed from our local assembly. But actually, what I see, what I think of when I look back during this time is how we were actually strengthened. 
There were brothers and sisters that were brought to us during this time and immediately afterwards. And we did not experience any shortening of the Lord's care at all during this time. What we experienced really was exactly the opposite. It was very apparent that the Lord was providing for us, that he was caring for us, that he was making sure that we continued as he would want. So this blessing, this abundant provision was counterintuitive to human expectations. And really, I must say, I think we, we need to admit that um, it was surprising to very many in the secular world, many who were actually, um, I'll be frank, opposed to the existence of Christ's church, that they saw this period as an opportunity to squash what was a fly in their ointment, so to speak. And the first point I want to make here as we get into this, point number one, is God has blessed us with time. God has blessed us with time. Now that statement could be taken many different ways, and I intend it many different ways. But let's talk about it a bit. So we live under the guiding hand of the Lord God's divine Providence And providence, of course, as most of you know, is the term we use to refer to how God governs his creation, how his will is carried out through events that take place in time and thus make up what we call history. And time is a creation of the Lord God. It was actually his first creative act. We read this in Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Those verses are about Time. Time is necessary for our world, but it is not necessary in infinite eternity where God dwells. Thus the cycle of time, this great cycle, was put in place by our creator. It was not pre-existent to the world. So God's first act in creation placed time into the cosmos. Think of it, without time, what could exist? What could function? Basically, basically nothing. But, the, but we, as we think about it, here's the odd thing. I don't think we can really imagine being timeless. We, it's one of our dimensions that we exist in. It would be like saying, well, imagine there was no depth in the world. Well, you know, I know that there, there are mathematical and philosophical theories that talk about flatland, that use flatland as an example, a world where there is no depth. Um, but it's really something that, you know, you really can't really imagine, at least I can't, when I've gone through these things in, in school and whatnot. I, I really couldn't grasp this idea. But if we had no time, we would have no sun, we'd have no seasons, no vegetation, no life. So this act of creating time was accomplished to serve our needs the needs of human beings that God would place in the midst of his creation. So it is the existence of time and the existence of what are known as the functionaries of time created on a later date, the sun, the moon, the stars, by which functionaries we, we can experience and we can calculate the passage of time 
Through these things, we're given the ability to know that a year has come and gone, and a brand new year approaches. Though I'm, I'm proposing that this is, this is an important thing. It's not a small thing. In it, we're getting, we get a sense of God's providence, his creation, and his love for us. But sometimes, as fallen humans existing in this world, we can view time as an enemy, and sometimes it does seem so. Um, there's deadlines we must meet at, at work or at school, and there's a, approaching dates on the calendar that we dread, like tax day immediately came to my mind. Uh, and also now, since I just had a birthday, birthdays also, when you get to a certain age, aren't quite as fun as when we were younger. So, um, so we look at these things in a bit of a negative, time can take on a negative light, but time really is, is part of God's providence, and as part of God's providence, it's, it's a good thing. It's a blessing to us. It's how he rules the physical world to bring about his decrees established in eternity. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 49, verses 9 through 10, God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah here. And God's making a declaration. And he says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. That passage, that statement by the Lord God tells us everything about his control of the world. And it's not happenstance. There's no coincidence in there. There's, no, there's not even wiggle room for, for that in his statement. And I would say that many people will readily acknowledge that great events are guided by the hand of providence. Some, sometimes this term, though providence, we have to understand how we use it, um, we may use it in one way, declaring the sovereignty of God, and others use it as a, as a way to distance themselves from a personal God, a God who knows us personally, who we can be in relationship with, to a God that's kind of uh, more safe, let's say, a, a deistic sort of being. Um, this, this undefined uh, supreme being that has set up everything and just really is we need not have involved in our lives. So there's two ways that term can be used. And, and please understand how I am using it and how we use it here at the pulpit at Sovereign Grace. It is of the Lord God, the sovereign God of the Bible when we speak of this. <clears throat> Now this providence, this idea of providence, God deniers might prefer to call it a different, they may, they may feel more comfortable calling it fate, maybe fortune, or perhaps even luck. But many, even those who speak of God's providence, find it difficult to think of God as causing every event, as his hand being on everything claiming God is either too immense, too busy, or too disinterested, or even too weak, not powerful enough to direct the uncountable small events going on every place at all times. Now you notice that these things there that I mentioned as excuses why God cannot be 
completely sovereign are, are very contradictory to one another. And we should see something in this contradiction that, that, there, that there's faulty human logic at play here. <clears throat> but what does the Lord tell us himself? There are so many passages that we can turn to that, that speak of God's providence and his involvement in everything. Uh, and and a, a good one, of course, with Proverbs is, is, is rich with them. Proverbs 16.33, where we're told the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is talking about the roll of the dice. And the roll of the dice, where that's completely by chance, according to human thinking, but Scripture tells us it is providential. This, this thing that is completely chancy, that, that God is involved in this. And our Lord Jesus spoke of this also. And, when we, and, and these things I'm pointing out, just these two passages from Proverbs and then now from Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. God's revealing to us his involvement in very small things. And by there we can, we can use the corollary of from smallest to largest. If he's involved in the very smallest, then that goes without saying that he then must be involved in the very largest. But the Lord Jesus, talking to the crowd, says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." How small are these things that the Lord talks about, the Lord Jesus? Jesus says the Father watches and counts and cares for these very, very small things. And on this topic, Charles Simeon, who was a um, uh, late 18th, early 19th century uh, preacher and uh, theologian, he was was a leader of the English evangelical church revival of the early 19th century, he said this, and I'm, I'm quoting him, in everything therefore, whether great or small, painful or pleasant, planned or incidental, God must be acknowledged as having sent it, if past, and as having the entire disposal of it, if future. So it's clear, I would say, based on God's revealed word, that he has sovereign control over all things at all times. But that is of little comfort to us and does not benefit us to acknowledge God Almighty as bringing these things to pass if we attribute evil motives to God's actions. Paul reassures us of this. He tells us this isn't so in Romans 8, 28. He says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those called according to his purpose. This is a promise that Paul makes of great comfort that he's inspired to write of. Notice to whom it is directed, though. It's directed to those who love God and are called by him. It's not directed to the world in general. And and as I go on this morning, I want you to notice that there are things that are um, loving care by the Lord God to his people that to the world, the fallen world, are, are not the same. 
that the, the fallen world does not receive the type of providential blessings that God's people do. And if we put all this together up to this point, this is what I'm trying to say. This is point number two. God has calibrated everything for our benefit. God has calibrated everything for our benefit. And of course, again, when I say our, I'm speaking of God's people. So we must be able to, we must understand that we are unable to see things from God's eternal perspective. We are short-sighted. We're desirous of immediate gratification. And when life goes wrong, when it goes awry, we want it fixed and we want it fixed immediately. We want it fixed right away. We struggle to see more than the problem right in front of our nose. And oddly, we measure time by our experience of it with these things. So difficult times seem to pass ever so slowly. We've just we've experienced that. 2020 to 2023, that was the longest three years, I think, of most of our lives. Things were unsettled. We didn't know what day, what each day was going to bring. We probably hesitated before we turned on the news, not wanting to hear anything further. Eight centuries before the first advent, the prophet Isaiah was commissioned to warn Israel and the nations, not just, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, the nations, of impending judgment for sin. That was why the Lord God called Isaiah as a prophet. Yet in addition to the warning of judgment that Isaiah was to give, he was also to tell of a promise from God, of restoration and salvation for God's people. This brings us to our main text, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Very well-known passage. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. There's a voice shift here. Um, previously, in, the, in chapter 60, um, Yahweh, the Lord God, is speaking, but here, there's a shift of speaker. It shifts to the anointed one, the messianic servant of Isaiah's prophecy, the latter part of a great part of Isaiah's book deals with the servant. Um, so it was revealed to Isaiah that the anointed one, or Messiah, would do specific things. First, the anointed one is to proclaim good news. How does he do this? By telling the people that their, their past situations will change and that a new period of history is about to begin. Secondly, the anointed one says he will bind up. That is, he will heal God's people. Thirdly, the anoint this anointed one, the one coming, 
is to proclaim liberty to the captives. That is a release from bondage to both spiritual and human enslavement. The anointed one's fourth task is to proclaim. But now, what he proclaims, this messianic servant, is the year of the Lord's favor. And also, the day of vengeance of our God has arrived, says the anointed one. This day of God's vengeance is used earlier in Isaiah to refer to the time when God will pour out his wrath and bring just judgment on the wicked. In the year of the Lord's favor, that phrase is used earlier also in association with the day of salvation brought by the Lord God. So these two events describe what will happen on the coming day of the Lord when God begins to reign in power in his new kingdom. Thus the prophecy from Isaiah to bring comfort to God's people. The years continue to pass by, about 700 of them. After Isaiah's time, until the prophecies of the Old Testament come true about the coming of this anointed one, the Messiah, comes from the line of Jacob, Jesse, and David, just as the Old Testament prophesied, born to a virgin as the Old Testament prophesied, in the village of Bethlehem as the Old Testament prophesied. This was the first advent, the coming, that all of Israel, all of God's faithful people awaited for. The advent occurs, but then again, the years continue to pass. Did the people then, in these years after the advent, immediately after, for several decades, did they realize that they were now living in the year of the Lord's favor? Perhaps not. 30 years about go by on the calendar. Then the baby who had lain in a bed of golden straw in a manger goes to the synagogue in his hometown for the Sabbath observance. And now we're going to turn to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to read what happened there. Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. <clears throat> and he that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, I want to interject here. At this time in Jewish religious history, the readings in the synagogue were not lectionary readings. They weren't set ahead of time by a higher council. Really, they were at the discretion and at the choice of the synagogue attendant. And of course, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have an Old Testament like we do. They had scrolls. They had scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, Jesus stands up to read, verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So, this little historical background I gave you what, I'm, what the point is here, what I want you to see is that Jesus didn't know humanly, oh, today we're reading from Isaiah. 
but they read from Isaiah. He read from Isaiah. He was given the scroll by the free choice of the synagogue attendant who decided this is what we will read this morning. How coincidental is this, considering what happens next? Jesus unrolls the scroll and found the place where it was written. And of course, as, as, as you know, he then reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2a. He stops in the middle of verse 2. He reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Small point to us, we're sitting in church, and everybody is attentive to the preacher at the pulpit. Your eyes are on me. Synagogues at this time were much more informal. This is kind of unusual. So, Luke is pointing something out to us, that what, what was said by Jesus of Nazareth was something that got everyone's attention. They were looking at him. They weren't whispering amongst themselves. They weren't doing other things. And he sits down. Well, sitting down uh, at, that, at that time, as was the practice, is that um, a man would read, and then he would sit down to expound upon what he had read to give a teaching from it. And he does give a teaching, doesn't he? In verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is his teaching. The anointed one, the Messiah, the suffering servant foretold by Isaiah had come. And he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor had arrived. And he brought good news to the poor of an inheritance they were to receive that would far surpass any earthly riches. And that God's people were to be freed from their wicked captors. Satan and his henchmen, both human and spiritual. And he declared that those blind from birth would see clearly. And we have to see the spiritual aspect of this also. That the coming of our Lord in his work here, his death and resurrection and ascension, brought us spiritual vision that is now clear. Veils were removed from eyes and minds and hearts. And these things foretold would now be set in motion in time. They would begin to happen in human history. But as I said, as, as our Savior read Isaiah's prophecy, he purposefully stopped short. He didn't finish the second verse of chapter 61. He did not proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And now when we read Isaiah's prophecy... We must admit, I would say, that it seems to say that 
the year of favor and the day of vengeance happen at the same time. Now this is the problem with prophecy. There's this, this the, the prophetic view, an illustration I've used before, which I think is very helpful, is the prophet is like set upon a high mountaintop of history by the Lord God. And the prophet sees the mountaintops in human history that are coming. And God anoints him to see these and to write about them, to tell about them. But if you've stood on a mountaintop and you've looked at, a, at the peak next to you and you think, I can get there, um, it's only noon, I can get there before dark. And then you start down the mountain and you realize that there's a lot of things in between, that that peak looks really, really close and it's not. That's the way prophecy works. So, and then this is the way the Lord set it up. So I think, now I'm kind of making a leap here maybe, but, but, but go along with me. I think maybe we're not supposed to set dates is, is why it's set up like that. You know, the prophet is not shown a calendar saying on this date such and such will happen. So, yes, I am sure people expected both of these events to happen at once. When I read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that's what it seems to be saying. But then when our Lord sits, stands up in the synagogue of Nazareth and reads from the scroll, he separates these two events. He says, no, they're not happening at the same time. But the clock is ticking towards the second one we could say, you know, in our colloquial manner. So year by year, the inaugurated year of the Lord's favor went by. The good news proclaimed in the synagogue of Nazareth, it went out from there. We know the, the story, we've read our Bibles. It's proclaimed in Judea, it's proclaimed in Samaria, and then throughout the entire world to the four corners of the world. And this brings us to our third point. Point number three. Time passes, but the Lord's favor has not passed away. Time passes, but the Lord's favor has not passed away. As our clocks tick over tonight from 11.59 p.m. of December 31st, 2023 to 12 a.m. of January 1st, 2024, we will be living in the year of the Lord's favor. Still, just as we were this past year and the years before. Healing, liberty, and the light of the Lord's favor are still being proclaimed. Through the creation of time, God has blessed us with history. We know what has come to pass Biblical accounts are time-based, and biblical prophecy is time-based. It's given at a certain time for certain future events that will also occur in time, although we don't know the exact time. And after these events have occurred, like the advent, and the prophecies of the birth of the Messiah. We can examine in past history that these things have been fulfilled that were prophesied. So then we're given assurance that we can look forward to that which has not yet been realized in human time. We know these things are coming. We know that the Lord God is faithful because these things have occurred which he told his people were going to occur. 
as God explains to the author of Hebrews, how this is how God decreed to do this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the author of that book was inspired to write this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, notice we're, he's in the last days, we're in the last days, the last days have been going on for quite a while and and will probably continue, Lord willing, for a while longer. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, like many of you, I've heard of dire predictions in the coming year. We've, we've been through some, some tough times. We, we must admit that. Maybe not, maybe not ourselves personally, but we know the world has gone through tough times. Our nation has gone through tough times. There's tension everywhere. There's many events that... Um, that people are looking at that seem to be on the horizon, just, just about ready to, to break loose. And there, there's enough of them where I think we can very easily lose sleep over this. We can, we can worry, we can have great amount of anxiety. Um, if you open a, a newspaper, which I still do, or you go on your internet, you see people talking about this stuff, especially right around now, because it's like 2024, it's like it's gonna break loose. Well, consider this. Us humans, we generally have an unbalanced view of history. There's, there, there's two secular viewpoints of history, I would argue, two main viewpoints. There's the utopian viewpoint, where to quote a French psychologist, supposed psychologist from the 19th century, every day in every way we are getting better and better. And all you do is repeat that mantra. And if you, if you like the old Pink Panther movies, you might recognize Chief Inspector Dreyfus repeating that as his face is twitching and he's trying to kill Clouseau. Or, on the other hand, the opposite of the utopian is the dystopian, which is very, very popular today. Just, just read um, speculative fiction, and, and it's very dystopian. Dystopian is this idea of we are doomed, we're trapped, there's no way out of here. In both these cases, I would say there's no thought at all given to the creator and his sovereign control of history. There's no consideration of God judging or blessing according to sin or obedience. It's a disregard, a total disregard of God, which we should not find at all surprising when we talk about things of the secular world. We must remember this, that sinners are going to sin, that God deniers are going to deny God, and we're not going to get the proper balanced viewpoint from listening to these people in an overly emphasized way. Now, I think it's important to know what's going on in our world because we live at a time where we are allowed to be involved in our government through voting and running for office and all of these things enshrined in our Constitution. So it is important. We're not subjects 
of an empire. We are not uh, subjects of a, of a human uh, monarch. We are um, at least theoretically citizens of a constitutional republic who have a voice in our government. So I'm not saying just ignore all this stuff. No, I'm not. But I'm saying let's, let's consider first things first. And what are first things? First things are the things of God and how God provides for the world. So these viewpoints are centered on human government, really, when you think about it, as the provider or of blessing or the cause of destruction. But our governments, I'm sure we could all recognize, have moved away from a view of God and his sovereign will as vital to the maintaining of good governments. And it wasn't really all that long ago in human history where this idea was central to the Western governments, whether they be monarchies or whether they be democracies. But we've seen that that has been, for the most part, entirely swept away to the idea where um, the, the modern humanist view of human sovereignty over all things, that we will impose our will upon all of creation. <clears throat> so when we hear these frequent prognostications of portent, these forebodings, these omens and predictions of coming troubles, it's easy, very easy to become unsettled and fearful. However, we've been told by our Lord that in this world we will have tribulation. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And in this, I think we should see that the Lord is not telling us to run and take cover, you know, hide out until I, I come back and rescue you from this place that's lost control. It's like, it, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, but I'm in control of all of this and we have a mission I've commissioned you for things. I've commissioned you to spread my gospel. And you will continue to do this until I return on the great day of the Lord. So are troubling times ahead? We can safely say yes. Because troubling times are always ahead. And always behind. And always now. Can you think of a time as, a, as an adult where there weren't things that were troubling? I cannot. Even as a child, I remember troubling things. Those of you who are my age, we lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. We remember how frightened our parents were. And there's nothing more unsettling for a child than to have frightened parents. Parents thinking that we're on the verge of thermonuclear war, and we were. But it wasn't in God's timeline. No matter what fallen men in Washington, D.C., in Havana, Cuba, or Moscow of the Soviet Union thought they were going to do, they could do nothing without the Lord God decreeing that it was to occur. It's popular lately to compare our experiences in our nation today to that of the Roman Empire, at least in its latter days. If you look at social media, memes about the Roman Empire are all over the place, and people are making this comparison. And that comparison is not without merit. There are some very startling similarities, which I think can be um, at least interesting, if not beneficial, 
um, to, to recognize. But, but our attention, if we're looking at the late Roman Empire, should be on the experience of the church at that time. And that's what I, that's what I want to end with here. There's, there's so many things in church history where if we know them and we remember them, they could give us great comfort for whatever supposed troubles or terrors we are presently experiencing. So the church, as you know, experienced great persecution throughout its history and continues to do so today. The first three centuries of the Christian church, there were times of localized persecution and times of relative peace and prosperity. It was not constant persecution, persecution, persecution. For the most part, the Roman Empire did not care about the Christian church. Only when they thought the peace of Rome was being disturbed, and generally they attributed this to some crazy disagreement between those Jews regarding feast days and holidays and what have you. And they just wanted to put a stop to that. Now the Roman Empire at this time, going into the third century and into the fourth century, was under a tremendous deal of pressure. It was not a good time in the world. The Roman Empire had external enemies. They were being threatened on their northern borders by these scary dudes called the Gauls or the Celts, Teutonic warriors, big strapping men with long hair and beards and battle axes that were decimating the Roman legions. And the Roman Empire had been split. They had gotten so large that they had to have different rulers in different places to govern it. One man could no longer govern the empire. Well, of course, when you have something like that, you have plotting. You think the plotting in Washington, D.C. is bad? This plotting was even worse because it involved murder. Uh, well, you know, maybe <laughs> I could happen in Washington, D.C. Maybe the historians in the future will know stuff we don't. But um, so it was a threatening time. But for the church, it was relatively peaceful. And the gospel spread. That's what I want you to see. That if the Christians were reading social media, if they were looking at daily newspapers, they, would have, they might have thought, like we think today, we're doomed, we're trapped, we're not getting out of here. Great persecution started in the late second, early third century. An early church writer by the name of Tertullian, there were so many Christians that were killed, he said this, and undoubtedly you've heard this famous saying, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When the empire decided they were going to stamp out Christianity, all they found is that they spread it. They stepped on it, and it spread, and it popped up everywhere. But after Tertullian, persecution died out and the church experienced peace and prosperity again as civil wars continued to rage within the Roman Empire. Notice this, civil wars. Now, there are people here who say we are heading in our, in our, our current day, that we're heading for civil war. And perhaps, I'm not sure, I don't know, none of, none of us really know what the future holds. But at the time of the Roman civil wars, it didn't affect the church. 
even fast forward, and we're not going to jump subjects, but the English Civil War in the 1600s, you read of that, during the time of the Civil War, the time of conflict, the English churches experienced peace. They were able to preach the gospel. It did not affect them. After the Civil War, it did, but that's a topic for another time. So here we get into the start of, of what really are the persecutions in the Roman Empire we, we, we think of when we think of uh, that time. There's an emperor who comes to power, Decius. He blames the, the, the problems, the civil wars, and the threats from the northern tribes on, the, on Rome abandoning its own old gods. But, but Decius was a shrewd man. He realized that um, the, the problem was the Christian church because there were some areas in the empire where they had sent their governors and they found the temples empty. And the shrine makers were not making business. No one was buying the little miniature gods and goddesses to pray to anymore. Christianity had taken such a great hold in the land. But he knew from the past that I'm not going to kill these people. I don't want to make martyrs. That increases the church. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make apostates. That will crush the church. So you got arrested as a Christian. They weren't going to kill you. They just threatened you. They just tortured you until they got you to recant the Lord Jesus. And then you were no longer an example to the church. You weren't a martyr who died for the Lord. You were an apostate. You, you were a turncoat. He thought this would be effective. However, there were those who remained faithful and they, although they could not receive the crown of martyrdom, they were known as confessors. They were those who confessed the faith no matter what was done to them. And in later church councils, church historians write about these men who were church leaders who attended the councils, who had been maimed under Decius by his tortures, who had been blinded by Decius by his tortures, who remained faithful. And the confessors were examples to the church just as the martyrs were. But Decius, surprisingly, he only lasted two years and he's gone. So the church again knows history, or knows peace. And then in the fourth century, early fourth century, Diocletian takes the throne as one of the tetrarchs. The, the empire is divided in four. And he starts what we call the Great Persecution. How long does Diocletian last? Once He doesn't start out as a Christian persecutor, no. In fact, his wife and daughter are Christians. But he's forced by political pressure, by problems in the empire, to blame it on the Christians. And he does, like many politicians would do. For two years, the great persecution rages. And Christians are being killed. They are being sought out. They are being imprisoned. They are being tortured. Begins in 303 and, it, and it, it gains in ferocity to about 305. And then Diocletian's gone. His successor comes in, tries to continue 
what he, what Diocletian was doing. In fact, the, his successor was the one who instigated most of this. And he becomes deathly ill with a disease that is horrible, that is horrific. He is suffering mightily. And he realizes somehow that he has offended God. He issues an edict stopping all persecution and asking Christians to pray for him. The edict is issued. Five days later, this man is dead. Now there's an early church historian named Lancanius, and he points out that these who persecuted the church all died horrible deaths. Lancanius is saying the hand of God is upon these men who have done such things. And as all this happens, as that man, as that emperor dies, there's another man, another Roman, who's a general of the legions in Gaul and in Britain by the name of Constantine. And he is declared Caesar Augustus by his legions. Rome is in turmoil. These legions from the north march to Rome and they meet the armies of the then emperor at a place called Milvian Bridge. And Lactanius, a church historian, tells us of this odd thing. And there's much argument as to whether this is true or not. But Lactanius says that Constantine, the night before the battle at Milvian Bridge, is given a dream, given uh, uh, this prophecy. And in this prophecy, he sees a symbol. And he's told, by this, you shall conquer. And so he orders this symbol put on his soldiers' shields and on the standards of their legion. Well, the symbol is what we call the Cairo. It's the, the Greek, the first two Greek letters of Christ in Greek. We still see it today. It's, it looks like that long-tailed P with the X on the tail. That's the Cairo. So they engage in this battle. <clears throat> Wouldn't you know it? The emperor he's fighting falls off the bridge into the water and he drowns. He's dead. Constantine has victory. He becomes the ruler of Rome. And from this victory, there's the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan officially declares an end to all Christian persecution and the return of all church properties to the church church buildings, cemeteries, other properties. Eight years passed from the fiercest furnace of persecution to the protection of the greatest empire on the world, in the world. Eight years. Now, in the, in the span of human History, this is a very short time. That's what I want to point out to you. We think of things as never-ending, as the bad times as never-ending. Look at the providence of God in history. Eight years. And then, a few short years later, this pagan emperor becomes the greatest champion of Christianity to sit on the throne of Rome, and he declares... The, uh, the gathering of the church leaders at Nicaea in 325. And he orders 
all of the Roman government to give all aid possible to the Christian church overseers traveling around the world. They were to escort them on the roads. They were to open up the postal system for them. They were to get them to Nicaea. This was 20 years after the greatest persecution of all time arose. 20 years the world changed. In the span of human history, 20 years, how long is that? That's, if we're very young, that seems like a long time. But from my point in my history, 20 years is like, that's not that long ago. It's two decades. Persecution grew the church through the martyrs. Persecution strengthened the church through the confessors. The Roman Empire bowed to the power of Christ through his church. There's a popular meme that you see nowadays. It, 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 it's taken from a, a morale po poster that was used in Great Britain during World War II. Maybe you've seen something like it. There's the British royal crown, and it says, keep calm and carry on. That was how the British government wanted their people to act during the time of the Blitzkrieg, during the time of the threat of invasion of the German Nazis onto that small island. Well, I, should, I say that we could take that. We could take that and adapt it and say, keep calm and read church history. God's in control. 2024 is and continues to be the year of our Lord's favor. He loves us. He protects us. He provides for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give thanks for everything you've done for us, for the protection that you provide for us, for the guidance you give us. We give thanks for the history of the Christian church and what we can learn from it. We give thanks for how your active participation in the church is so apparent when we look at church history. Father, we give thanks for this past year. We give thanks for the year ahead of us. We do not know what lies ahead, Father. It is in your divine providence that we not know what lies ahead other than what you reveal to us. Father, let us be alert and attuned to your leading and your guiding in the year ahead that we may be faithful and obedient servants of yours. Father, may we be a light to those around us. May we act with love even if we are hated. May we keep our eyes focused on our Lord Jesus Christ, the work he accomplished on the cross, and that stark fact that cannot be ignored, that the tomb is empty. Father, bless this day as we continue to celebrate your day and your year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.